WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This year is the 30th anniversary of Toni Morrison receiving the Nobel Prize in Literature the first black woman to win the award. Here's a short clip of her acceptance speech from 1993. Uh, Fiction has never been entertainment for me. It has been the work I have done for most of my adult life. I believe that one of the principal ways in which we acquire, hold, and digest information is via narrative. So I hope you will understand when the remarks I make begin with what I believe to be the first sentence of our childhood that we all remember, the phrase, once upon a time. On this anniversary year, there's a new exhibition at Princeton University where Morrison taught for 17 years, featuring more than 100 objects from Morrison's archives. There are drafts of The Bluest Eye, sketches of The House and Beloved, letters Morrison wrote about black feminism, and much more. Toni Morrison, Sights of Memory, is on view at Princeton's Firestone Library, Milberg Gallery, until June 4th. And with me now is lead curator Autumn Womack, who is also a Princeton associate professor in the Department of English and African American Studies. Autumn, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. So the title of the exhibition is inspired by an essay Toni Morrison wrote in 1986, The Sight of Memory. What of this essay did you use as a guide for how you thought about presenting the archives? There's this really beautiful moment early on in the essay where she's talking about her desire to create books and stories and narratives that really get into the interior lives of Black people. And this is an interior life that um, was not accessible, right, um, for many years in writing. And it was really not something that literature was given access to, right? She talks about the way that there was slave narratives and um, texts that were always positioned as particularly political or sociological or fact-based. And so she wanted to get into the interior life um, and excavate this this territory. And so this idea of excavating a hidden territory that was so crucial to um, Black life seemed really, really important to me. And that's really what I understand her archives and her collection to be about and to be activating, right? They are this space that gives us 
um, the interior life of these books and these characters and these worlds that we know so well. The exhibition is organized by sections starting with beginnings, writing time, their nestness, wanderings and wanderings, genealogies yeah. of black feminism, speculative futures. Why did you decide to present the exhibition with these themes? So these are the themes that emerged during the curatorial work for the collection. So rather than moving chronologically, which seemed to be antithetical to how Morrison writes and things herself, we were like, okay, what are the ideas? What are the concepts? What are the preoccupations that we can suss out from our curatorial work? And so one of the things that was really apparent from the beginning is that Morrison was deeply, deeply invested in geography, right? And not just geography for the sake of, of having a plot point in or in the in the text, right? But for her space and place were always as much about feelings, as much about attachment, as much about history as they were about a precise location. And so we found all of these moments where she's thinking through and with geography, um, whether that be drawing maps of places in the text or kind of calculating precise distances between between two, two locations in a work. Um, we also really wanted to think about the way that she was understanding writing itself, right? Mm -hmm. And that became really um, clear in our curatorial work that she was always kind of writing in and across time. So the section that you noted, writing time, really thinks about how, when, and where she wrote, right? What is the time that she used to write? And in the 1970s, that was often time in between, you know, doing editorial meetings. She was the editor at Random House at the time. So these are really themes and sites that speak to each other, mm -hmm. but that also emerge in the collection itself and from the collection. There's just some fascinating things we learn about her process. There's right. uh, her day planners. She yeah. started to write in day planners. And I understand yeah. including the only surviving drafts of Song of Solomon. That's right. Yes. Why was this her her preferred method at this point in her life? This was 1973-ish. Right. Yeah. So this was a moment, as I said, where she was juggling multiple careers, mm -hmm. right? She was an editor and she was a novelist. Um, and this is, these are two domains that we often don't think about as coexisting, right? Like how is an editor also a novelist? Um, and so she was going to meetings and meeting clients and reading lots of books. And she also had two children and she was commuting into Manhattan from Queens. And so we found these day planners, which are really like, you know, date books where you, she kept her schedule of, of editorial meetings. And she also wrote in the margins. And there's a beautiful 1993 Paris review of books essay or interview where she says, I wrote when and where I could. Sometimes that was on scraps of paper. In this case, it was in these day planners. And so we see that writing happens when it happens, right? It's something that we can carve out time and we can go on writing retreats, but also you write when and where you can. When the idea comes, you're, you, you're moved by it and moved with it. And so these day planners really show that process and that practice on the page and these beautiful, beautiful, the materiality of, of writing time as we describe it. My guest is Autumn Womack. She's lead curator and associate professor in the Department of English and African American Studies at Princeton University. We're talking about the new exhibit at Princeton, Toni Morrison, Sites of Memory. It is open until June 4th. There were a few archival items associated with Morrison's first book, The Bluest Eye from 1970, which she began to sketch out when she was actually at Howard. Right. Correct? That's right. Yes. So what is the context of where she was in her life 
about the time that she wrote this? Yes. So she was teaching at Howard. She was invited into a writing group that was um, happening at Howard. And some members of that were Claude Brown, the novelist, Mm -hmm. Mae Miller, who was a poet and a, a playwright. And she began sketching a short story that, as she describes it, later survived as in in the bluest eye. And in the mid-1960s, at the um, urgence of Claude Brown, she started sending out queries to different editors saying, okay, do you think this is this could be a viable novel? It might still be better as a short story. It might be better as a novella. I've got other things. Let me know what you think. And ultimately, it, it emerged as the bluest eye in 1970, which launched her into a different kind of phase of her career. But we were really interested and I was really interested in showing these different iterations of this book that we all know so mm-hmm. well and has become so important to us and thinking about the process and the, the practice and really the um, the short story as a kind of rehearsal space for this this thing that becomes the bluest eye and really and really exploring her and letting people see her as this multidisciplinary artist, right? Not somebody who only worked in the novel but who was always interested in other kinds of forms and genres and using them as a training ground for practicing the kind of character sketches and ideas and and turns of phrase that were so crucial to the novels that we we then get in published form. We've talked so much about Toni Morrison as the writer. What do we learn about Toni Morrison as the researcher? Yeah, I love that question. Thank you so much because this collection really exposes her as somebody who was deeply, deeply, deeply invested in archival research and study for each of the texts. So there are almost these, what we might think of as individual collections for each novel. Um, So for a novel like Paradise, she's looking at um, slave ledgers, maps, um, details about the flora and fauna that that in different kinds of places, um, looking at maps of the Ohio River, right? So there's all of this archival research documents that she needed in order to create these fictional worlds from which her characters would spring. So we think about her as somebody who was creative and also research was a crucial part of that creative process. Um, so I just love thinking her, thinking of her as somebody who was looking over these encyclopedic entries and looking at artwork and really figuring out what do I need? What does this book demand? What are the conditions from which these characters can surface? And we also get a, a window into her personal thoughts about feminism and Black women and feminism and the feminist movement. What do we get from these letters? So what's so interesting about the letters at the collection at Princeton is that we only have letters that people wrote to Morrison. We don't have her outgoing correspondence. So we have this kind of asymmetry that's really, really telling. Oh, that's and, interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. So we it's as much about how people related to Morrison as she related yeah. And we have all of these letters from women like Tony K. Bambara, um, Angela Davis. There's a letter we put on display by Nina Simone. And what we wanted to think through is how these women were speaking to each other and really speaking to Toni Morrison at this crucial moment when feminism in general and Black feminism in particular were emerging as key terms and concepts, but also movements. And the feminism, Black feminism that we pulled out here is not one that gets staged publicly, right, in protests or in opinion editorials, but privately 
around questions of work, editorial practice, and friendship. And that to me seemed mm-hmm. like a really crucial distinction and a really um, textured and nuanced way to think about the sites and spaces where Black feminism gets forged. It's not always public and outward facing, but it often occurs around questions of, of editorial work and deep friendship. So those are the, that's the kind of narrative that we've put on display there. My guest is Autumn Womack, lead curator of Toni Morrison Sites of Memory, which is an exhibit at Princeton currently. It's open until June 4th. So you are a professor of English and African-American studies, and you've taught a course, Toni Morrison and the Ethics of Reading. I'll be getting the syllabus, please, later. (laughs) Uh, How did you want to approach teaching Morrison? I wanted to approach teaching Morrison as a reader right? We think of her as a writer, but she was also a deep, deep reader. And her texts also theorize reading for us. And they also position us in relationship to the text in a very particular kind of way. So I really wanted my students to think about Morrison and her work on those three axes. Morrison as reader, reading in the text, and how we are being compelled to read these works. And there's this beautiful moment in the opening lines of her 2008 novel of mercy where the character presents us with this ethical question she says what does it mean to read responsibly and so we move out from that and one of the the responsible reading practices that we practice is reading in relationship to the archive so we have access to the collection here and so the students think about how reading drafts of beloved in relationship to the published text of beloved shift how we understand the text. Um, Why did Morrison decide to change a particular turn of phrase in the published version from the a a late draft? And those kind of questions open up really important avenues for thinking about how we read this text and also how Morrison read her own work, how she read other work, how she read history, how she read the archive. So it's a it's a really fun, fun adventure. Is there a Toni Morrison book you think people might read differently, or maybe you've read differently, given the last four years, given the pandemic and given 2020. Wow, 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 wow. Reckoning and racial justice. I love this question. So I have two. The first I would say is Home, which is one of her later novels. Um, And that's a book that follows a Korea war war veteran. Mm -hmm. And that text is so much about re-entering a world that the protagonist thought he knew, and now it's so deeply unfamiliar. And there seems to be something really, really relatable about Mm -hmm. that right now, returning to a world that you thought you knew. And for him, it looks visually different, right? So we have these kind of fractured scenes where he's trying to figure out where he is in space and time and what it means to live in this modern world, among so many other things in the book. The book that I began to read differently, and it's the Morrison book that I've never read, I read it for the first time a few months ago, is Love. I think it's deeply underappreciated. And it's a book about um, loss and intimacy. And like Sula, it orbits around female friendship and family. But it really is about what happens when our our relation to one another and to friends and to family is predicated around loss and desire um, and a lost object. In this case, it's it's a man. And that to me also seems really, really, um, really powerful in this moment that we're in and, and from the last four years. And of course, I mean, Beloved always helps us <laughs> rethink that relationship from the past to the present. And we always need to be doing that. And we especially need to be doing that after 2020. 
But I think those home and and love, I, I think, are underappreciated and might we might reread them with new appreciation given where we are now. Autumn, you're the lead curator of all the events and programming Princeton is putting on. So our next guest is Allison Saar. I can see her. She's, we're going to talk to her in a moment about uh, her work in conjunction with this whole exhibit and this whole program. Why did you want Allison Saar's work to be involved as part of the project? And yes, she can hear you. <laughs> um, wonderful. So Allison came via a collaboration with Mitra Abbaspour at the Princeton University Art Museum. And what I love about both Allison and Toni Morrison's work is that they're both thinking about questions of work and labor and geography and how gender intersects with all of that and historical memory and interior lives of Black people in different mediums, right, Um, and different genres. And there's a really wonderful, and across generations, and there's a wonderful way that we can see how the kinds of questions that Morrison was always asking get answered and asked differently by an artist and by a visual artist like Alison Saar, who's, who's thinking about these things all the time. Autumn Womack is an associate professor in the Department of English and African American Studies at Princeton and the lead curator on the exhibit, Toni Morrison, Sites of Memory. Go down to Princeton, hang around Witherspoon Street. It's It's very pretty. You get the little tiny cupcakes at that cool bakery. There's so many bakeries. There's too many bakeries here, but it's not far from Philly, New York, all the places. Come down. Autumn, thanks so much. Thank you. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com slash WNYC and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.